Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Pain Week 2018. This is CPS01, The Weight of the World, Evaluation and Management of Sacroiliac Joint Dysfunction. Let's give a really warm welcome to our esteemed faculty, Dr. Ramon Cuevas Trisan. Sounds like it's going to be a really great session. Let's give him a warm welcome. Thank you. So, uh, want to just uh, a couple housekeeping things. First thing, if you'd be so kind of putting your cell phones on vibrate mode uh, so that they don't start ringing around. Uh, I believe, you know, everybody, you know, the bathrooms are out there, you know, so as anybody wants to, you know, come in and out, uh, feel free to do so. Uh, I am uh, going to expose today this topic that I think is uh, mighty important because it's a sometimes overlooked cause of low back pain, particularly axial low back pain or non-radicular low back pain. I am a physiatrist. Anybody that's a physiatrist in the audience? All right, we got a couple. So this is pretty, uh, pretty much at the crossroads of interventional pain management, physiatry, physical therapy, chiropractor, uh, acupuncture, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll, I'll give you an, an overview of a variety of things that are available for the, first of all, evaluation of patients with potential sacroiliac joint dysfunction, but also in terms of management uh, strategies. I want to over, you know, I, I cannot overemphasize the importance of physical therapy and exercises. I'm gonna be talking about that throughout the session. But I'll mention all the other uh, options as well. Um, I'm in West Palm Beach, uh, in Florida. Uh, almost, almost didn't make it yesterday because there was a lot of thunderstorms there uh, out of the airport, but we made it and finally made it here, so I'm really glad to be here. And I'm glad to be the uh, lead-off hitter in this game. Uh, I, I commend you guys for actually uh, stepping up to the plate and being here at 7 in the morning. Um, it's uh, usually when the lead-off hitter st stands at the plate, there's probably the stands are kind of half empty. And then by the second, third inning, people start coming into the ballpark. But anyway, thank you so much for being here. Uh, these are my disclosures. Uh, really nothing that we'll be mentioning here except for the fact that I do speaking for some of the botulinum toxin companies and we're gonna be mentioning only something briefly. No names though. And these are gonna be our, object our objectives here. So we're going to describe the importance of this structure in the pathophysiology and some of the pathology that we see in low back pain. Uh, we're going to review the anatomy and how it actually is important in the whole kinetic chain uh, where you know, it's involved in walking and doing any kind of uh, you know, upright activity for the most part. And we'll talk about the, what I would like to call the stepwise approach of managing sacroiliac joint dysfunction. I sort of have it organized in, in a bit of a stepwise approach, even though you don't necessarily have to go this, like it's not a, like a ladder, you have to go one right after the other, but generally speaking, you go from the more, you know, uh, less invasive, more conservative to the more invasive uh, over time. So this is the statue of the Greek god Atlas. The Greek god Atlas was actually punished by Zeus and he was actually ordered to carry the weight of the heavens on his shoulder. So this is pretty much uh, what the SI joint does on a constant basis. It's actually transferring weight. It's a weight transfer station from the lower, from the lower limbs and from the upper body. And you'll see when we discuss 
the, the different you know, biomechanics here. So it's a very complex joint uh, with multiple areas of potential ge uh, pain generation. It has an anterior and a posterior component, and even though there are no muscles that specifically control its movement, there are essentially about 45 muscles that attach in the pelvis somewhere, so there are a lot of muscles that could actually exert some kind of action and some kind of reaction from this joint and be part of the problem that we're dealing with here. What we typically will see, as you can see here, it's a weight transfer station where weight from the upper part of the body gets transferred down into the legs and from the legs up to the upper portion. And for instance, in a situation like a kicking where you're gonna have the axial compression of the leg that's on the ground and some torsion of the pelvis is where many times in the younger people or similar movements, this could potentially get injured. So it's usually a combination of that axial loading, typically in a close kinetic chain where there's actually ground reaction force, and then that kinetic uh, movement of the, or that uh, swinging of the leg. Now, it's a condition that you will, you, if you look for it, you will see it actually quite often. And it tends to affect two segments of the population, even though it can affect people at any age, but it tends to affect the younger individuals uh, and particularly also the older, uh, you know, young and active and then elderly individuals as there are some more degenerative changes that take place and modify the joint. There are some things that are uh, believed to be uh, predisposing factors, as you can see there. They're pretty obvious, you know, leg length discrepancy or leg length inequality any kind of transitional anatomy that actually changes the biomechanics of the lower spine, making it potentially less flexible and then transferring more weight to the SI joint, any gait and biomechanical abnormalities, scoliosis, spine surgery, and pregnancy, which is a real big one. Pregnancy is usually a combination of factors where you have many times a rather fast gain you know, of weight or you know, weight gain. You have the hormonal changes that occur in pregnancy particularly, you know, the release of relaxing that is actually in preparation for parturition where there's going to be some relaxation of some of those ligaments that are so important in keeping the integrity of the joint um, and the increased lower doses that occurs typically as the pregnancy progresses. The one very important point here is that it affects up to, potentially, up to a third of the individuals that have axial low back pain. And it's sometimes overlooked, and we don't want to overlook this uh, pain generator because it could be where we may need to address issues. Now, in saying that, and I will show you some of the slides, that it's important to take at the individual as a whole because many times what's happening at the SI joint could be the result of issues at the foot, issues in the hip, issues with the spine, and issues with the knee, and I'll show you some of those briefly. So the, the primary function, as you can see here, is uh, the absorption of those mechanical forces from the lower limbs across the pelvis. And it's, in doing so, intimately involved with core uh, stability. And, and core stability is going to be key to rehabilitate and to improve whenever you have improved this, this condition, whenever you have it present. So we know that pathology can occur when there's either abnormal stress on normal tissue or normal stress on abnormal tissue. So that's what we typically see in the abnormal stress 
on normal tissue would be typically in the younger individuals where they have placed uh, some undue stress in the joint for certain movements and certain loads. And as time progresses and you develop more degenerative changes, even just simple normal stresses may actually cause some problems. This is just a, a brief overview of the sort of uh, a very, very um, simplistic overview of the complexity of this joint. And I just want to point out a few things that are important. All the ligaments that are, that you see there, all those ligaments, and I'm going to mention a couple of them, are key to keep its uh, stability, but not all only, uh, you know, are, are important in keeping the, the stability of the joint. They can themselves be the pain generators, and that's one of the things that we have to keep in mind, particularly when some interventional procedures are performed. Uh, one very important uh, set of ligaments is the posterior sacroiliac ligament complex that you see there. But then there's other, you know, like the sacrotuberous ligament. Then you have the facet joint capsule that is actually intimately involved, the L5S1, uh, iliolumbar ligaments there, etc. So it's a, a very, very complex joint in terms of its ligamental structure, and all those ligaments can be, as I said before, the sources of the pain at times. So it is the largest joint in the, in the, the largest axial joint in the body. Uh, it is part synovial and part syndesmosis. So typically the, the anterior portion is more synovial and the posterior is more syndesmosis, but it's at the arthrodial joint. Um, and basically together with the symphysis pubis is what actually gives a little bit of flexibility to the, to the pelvic rim. Very little flexibility, as you'll see in the next slide. Very little flexibility, but a little bit of it. Okay, so uh, it, the, the, the stability because of the ligaments, as I've said before, and going into the anatomy here and the flexibility, this is the limited amount of flexibility that it has. Essentially, up to four degrees of rotation and 1.6 millimeters of gliding is being estimated. So it's very, very, very little motion. Okay? However, if this motion is increased because of ligamentous instability or if it's actually fixed because of excessive degenerative changes, it will alter the entire kinetic chain that we're expecting to be uh, functional in this, at this level. Now, one interesting thing is that the articular surfaces become more irregular with degenerative changes, and then they tend to be more restrictive as we age. But also, what may end up happening is that you can either get calcification of some of the ligaments that will restrict it further, or actually more relaxation and stretch, and you could end up with quite a bit of movement down the line as well. So any of these things can happen. The innervation of the SI joint is actually still a topic of controversy. It is, um, I would say, it's fairly well accepted that the posterior portion of the SI joint is innervated by the dorsal rami of S1 to S3, uh, the lateral branches. Some uh, folks include the L5 and all the way to S4 as a potential innervation of that posterior aspect, as well as the medial branches of L4 and L5. And then the anterior SI joint is the lumbosacral plexus, the L2 to S2 lateral branches. That is not written in stone by any means, and that is one of the reasons, one of the reasons why some of the neuroablative procedures are somewhat ineffective at times because the innervation may be quite variable 
And in addition to that, the ligaments that we're, you know, we've just mentioned can be a very important component in the pain generation and may not actually be covered when you do uh, neuroblative techniques. In fact, there's a, there's a possible contribution for these other nerves as well, specifically the superior gluteal nerve up to there, and there are even other anatomical variants that have been described. So its innervation, needless to say, is very complex and actually very broad, as a matter of fact. So this is what some of the things that I was just uh, mentioning before, that even though what you may end up seeing as the end result is sacroiliac joint uh, stress, the problem may be coming from low with, uh, within the kinetic chain. For instance, folks that have hyperpronation of the foot or different uh, sort of uh, iterations of that or different variations of that, and you have excessive medial femoral rotation, you could also have some additional stress in the joint, and that could end up reflecting in the SI joint not being the primary problem, even though the patient may present with that symptom complex. And then you have to really evaluate the entire leg, the entire kinetic chain to see if there's anything that is prompting this to happen. One additional thing to, to keep in mind is all the spinal deformities and things that I just mentioned before. Whenever there's any kind of scoliosis, any kind of uh, spinal deviation of, of any sort could potentially be causing excessive stress on one side and not on the other. So these are the, in the, in the this, this, this uh, joint takes a beating on a daily basis. Any upright activity, standing, walking, any kind of walking activity particularly puts a lot of stress on the joint. And, you know, without bothering with some of those uh, or bugging you with these details, the couple of things that are important to bear in mind is that the in hip flexion, particularly when you're going to be doing your initial contact as you step forward, you're going to have uh, some compression of the sacrum or compression of the SI joint, whereas in hip extension, it's going to be more of distraction and perhaps a little bit of compression in the anterior portion of the joint. But this is happening over and over and over again. Those of you that, I mean, so commonly now use, you know, pedometers and, you know, uh, any kind of device that measures how many steps, just, you know, figured out, you know, how many times this happens throughout the course of the day. So it's, a, it's quite a beating that it takes. Uh, here's a representation of some of those dynamic forces that I alluded to before, which are, you know, you may have somebody that could actually have the problem with the SI joint pain, but it could be due to vertebral malalignment. It could be a hip problem that could manifest as hip pain as well, particularly anterior rotation. Knee pain, virus valgus deformities can actually lead to, to change of the of this uh, force vectors that can end up uh, causing excessive um, compression and excessive distraction in the joint and could lead to pain. Uh, and then even, you know, ankle and, and foot problems can actually lead to this because of the malalignment. So le let's look at the uh, clinical evaluation uh, of the patient. One, one thing that I want to stress is that you, you hear a lot of people talk about how poor is your diagnostic accuracy when you clinically evaluate a patient. Uh, particularly folks that do a lot of interventional procedures, they use their interventions or their injections to pinpoint it. That's the area where the pain is coming from. 
And I say that those are very important, but I mean, being somebody that actually does both things, I rely on my clinical examination quite a bit, and you do it well. And there are a few things that you have to pay attention to to try to pinpoint if this is where the problem is coming from. But not only that, because you're trying to look at what's causing this pain into the SI joint, because if you target only the SI joint and the problems in the knee or the foot, et cetera, you really haven't done anything. It's only a, a temporary fix that will definitely go away. So generally, you're going to have somebody with axial low back pain before the level of L5, typically kind of like belt line and you know, a little bit below. This uh, occasionally, you could have a little bit of radiation of that pain, as I will show you, into the buttock area, into the, maybe the lateral thigh, but typically you're not going to have that full outblown sciatica type picture. Um, typically, you know, as I said there, you know, lateral proximal thigh. The very important sign is going to be tenderness over the area. Okay? That is one that is not really a physical examination maneuver per se that has a fancy name, but just tenderness over that area is uh, one of the most important things that you're going to see. And then you have to look at the provocative maneuvers that we'll talk about in a minute. And you generally will have a, if it's only SI joint problems, you will have a normal neurological examination. That means reflexes, sensation, and uh, strength are, are going to be intact. Now, bear in mind that these things can co-occur with other conditions. So you can have easily somebody that had a, and a you know, a, one of the risk factors is like spinal surgery, somebody that had a radiculopathy in the past and still has some neurological deficits, either temporary or permanent, and could have this too. So don't let that fool you, but per se, the condition should not really give you any neurological deficits. This is a drawing from a study that was actually published in Spine in 1994, a while back, where they took 10 healthy volunteers and they injected them into the SI joint to try to map the actual referral pattern of when you, you, know, when you inject the joint. And the different lines that you see here are sort of like different areas where the patients reported referral of the pain from the joint. And the ones that have multiple sort of kind of crisscross lines are the ones that had some concordance between patients. As you can see there, the area of the SI joint per se right over the SI joint and the upper buttock is the area where you will typically see the most sort of referral pattern from, uh, that, that will patients will tell you. However, we do also realize that it's, it's kind of like a fluid situation, even some patients the pain went all the way to the mid-thigh laterally. Uh, some patients may have other, other structures that may be affected as well and could actually give you uh, referral patterns that are a little bit more sort of uh, extended from there or more widespread. The, uh, there's limited diagnostic accuracy still with the physical examination, but it actually improves quite a bit if you do certain things, uh, particularly when you, uh, and it's being shown in a couple of publications where you use several, particularly, you know, you use a combination of the provocative maneuvers, typically in the range of using at least three uh, out of maybe uh, four or five, and if they're positive and you have the history that goes with this, you can be fairly certain that the condition is there, but it's usually going to be that combination of your thorough physical examination and history, and particularly having tenderness over the area that will give you that, 
the use of the um, interventional modalities, particularly, you know, test injections such as SI joint corticosteroid injections can be actually quite useful, and it's typically the precursor to doing more advanced techniques, but it should never be done like, okay, uh, you know, just talking to the patient, I think you have that problem there, we're going to inject that and see what happens. It should be really a progression of uh, the evaluation and then treatment. In terms of the physical examination, there are a number of um, different maneuvers that, or tests that are recommended that can be done for somebody where you're suspecting the uh, sacroiliac joint pain, sacroiliac joint dysfunction. And in this article that was published in 2005, they showed that three positive maneuvers in, like, in, out of these uh, had a sensitivity of 94%. So they pretty much cut pretty much all the patients, but then the specificity is a little bit lower. So it's a little bit over three quarters or over 75%, but still pretty decent. So there's no real reason to start basically injecting people without really doing some of these tests that are relatively simple and quick bedside tests, and I'll mention, I'll give you a picture of some of them. Here you have the Gainsland's test, which is one that we do for SI joint quite, quite frequently. The Yeoman's test, which is sort of like a variation of the femoral stretch test, and the Patrick's test, that is typically is the Patrick or Faber's test, where we typically do it for pathology in the hip joint, in the coxofemoral joint. However, it's very often that we're doing this test that suddenly the patient, instead of complaining of what they should complain for a positive Patrick's or Faber's test, which is kind of like growing pain for hip pathology, they complain of pain in the buttock. And that could be a telltale sign that this could be at play here. Moving forward, we have others like the distraction test, compression test, sacral thrust, and thigh thrust tests. And if you do a variety of this and get, try to get comfortable at least with at least four or five of these tests, if you do that on a consistent basis, and they really don't take a whole lot of time to do, it's actually pretty quick in the bedside, and you'll be able to, if you get at least two or three of these, you have a much better chance of potentially be looking at this pathology in this joint. Let's now look at imaging. Imaging is actually very limited in terms of what it can do for, for you know, what we can do with it for this condition. This is a picture of somebody with, um, an AP view of the pelvis of somebody that has ankylosing spondylitis. People that have spondyloarthropathies, they will have these glaring changes that you can see from all the way in the back of the room, but typically the folks that come with this kind of pathology have a perfectly normal imaging studies, both you know, x-rays as well as CTs and MRIs. They may have some degenerative changes, but so does everybody else. Basically what you see here you're going to see the sclerosis, you know, symmetrically, which is very the telltale sign of these rheumatological conditions. But again, this uh, and even fusion of the joint in the superior aspect, etc. But these are very late changes in somebody that has a spondyloarthropathy. That is not really what we're generally talking about here. So again, as I said, you know, how do you reach the diagnosis? Sort of recapping here pain present over the SI joint region, mostly axial, positive stress tests that I mentioned before. And 
then you can actually use some of the interventional procedures to actually pinpoint more accurately the the um, the American Society for the, uh, of Interventional Pain Physicians uh, basically has come out with their criteria where they say that seven, there has to be 75% relief, whereas the International Society for the Advancement of Spinal Surgery says that 50% improvement could be uh, used as a, after an injection to actually diagnose the condition. Uh, however, you'll see that one of the biggest problems that this has is that there are a lot of structures around, particularly of the ligaments, that number one could be pain generators, and number two, even when you're trying to do, and we, I was just discussing with one of my colleagues here before starting the session, that there is a lot of what he was calling like uh, false injections. I mean, people that are doing injections in the area that are some, sometimes nowhere near where they have to be to really be intraarticular. And in addition to that, even if you are intraarticular, either using ultrasound or fluoroscopy, you still have all the ligaments around that could be potential and important pain generators. And we'll talk about the double technique where you inject the ligaments and intraarticular as well. So what are management methods that, that we use? And this is sort of in a stepwise fashion, but you can, there's no, no hard you know, truth here about which one to start first, et cetera. The only one that I would definitely place a lot of emphasis on would be physical therapy. And physical therapy is going to be important because if you have any of these kinetic chain issues, you need to try to correct them. If you don't, you can do a beautiful SI joint injection on the fluoroscopy. The patient walks off the table and he's saying that you're Superman and they feel great. But what's going to happen? A couple months later, they're just going to be right back in your office. If that's what you want. That's okay. But if we want to actually help the patients, and I know a lot of people, that's what they want, as a matter of fact. Uh, we don't want that. Uh, we want to try to help the patients more kind of longer lasting and, and not have to deal with this uh, on a daily basis. And usually the, the therapy evaluation will actually address and will, will, the evaluation and then the management will address some of the core instability, some of the malalignment issues, and that's going to be, I think, a key. I mean, like all the others can be used in any particular order, but I think physical therapy has to be there. So we have, you know, acupuncture manipulation, either osteopathic or chiropractic manipulations, interventional procedures that I'll mention briefly, and then surgical. So uh, what are we doing physical therapy? And again, with a, I mean, you, there could be an entire probably couple hour session on this, on the specifics of what's done in physical therapy, and that is not the point here. I just want to basically expose some of the things that are out there, briefly outline them. And you have you know, a, a variety of physical modalities that can be used, particularly when you're having a significant amount of inflammation and pain in the beginning stages when you're treating this. But over time, what you want to get is to exercise method to restore alignment and flexibility when there's a lot of restriction uh, on the joint as well as core stability. One very important adjunct to physical therapy many times, some physical therapists are quite skilled at doing kinesio taping. And kinesio taping can actually be, um, I mean, I, I, I find it more and more useful for more and more conditions as 
I actually send patients to physical therapy, work with a couple of physical therapists that are truly, truly expert. They develop a lot of expertise. And I've actually had it done myself, and I can tell you that it actually helps quite a bit. I've had it done in the foot, had it done in the knee, and it actually has been a, a, a real game changer, you know, when you try to re-educate these muscles and help a little bit through the kinesiotaping. This is like a picture of what kinesiotaping may look like for a, and this is kind of like a stepwise, you know, instruction, even though this can vary depending on what the, the pathology is, this is what somebody would be doing for kinesiotaping of the sacroiliac joint dysfunction. These are some of the um, exercises that can be done, and there's a variety of uh, stretching as well as uh, strengthening exercises. Basically, you really need to pay attention to strengthening of the glutei. Uh, you have to definitely stretch those hamstrings. You have to do, you know, it's, a, it's just a lot of core stability things that are actually fairly, uh, I would say, obvious. But this is the part that we need to try to convey to the patients that is important that they do. Uh, I see more and more and more people. It's the same issue that we had with the big opioid epidemic and a lot of other things that we don't get the buy-in from the patients. They just want something that will solve the problem. And something like this doesn't get solved overnight. Something like this, you have to work at it, and it takes active participation from the patient. Okay? They love the injections. It can be a little bit painful when you haven't done, but then after that, they feel great. But I'm, I'm telling you, I mean, and you, you know, just be honest with yourself. How many of those patients that you're injecting or that you've seen injected don't come back again? Okay? And that not that they don't come back again because it was too painful, okay? They just they just keep coming back because you know a couple months, three months later, or whichever amount of time later, the problem will be st will still be there. And if you haven't actually taken care of that problem, it's just never going to go away. So some of the uh, uh, you know manipulation therapies are here, like just the uh, high velocity, low amplitude, and Thompson techniques that also applies a low grade pressure in addition to the high velocity, low amplitude. Uh, muscle energy techniques are absolutely uh, phenomenal for these patients. Uh, the muscle energy techniques that are done, I put it here under manipulation, but it's usually manipulation done for the most part. I mean, some chiropractors and, and DOs do it, but a lot of physical therapists actually employ these and they're actually excellent. And again, what do you have to lose? Low risk. We're gonna, they're not going to hurt anybody, and they're, they're relatively cheap. And it's a lot of the stuff is that even though you may have constraints with payers, you know, with how many visits a person can go to physical therapy, et cetera, this is not something you're going to go to physical therapy until the cows come home. You need to learn the exercises. Many times, I mean, in my center, we usually teach the patients in two or three sessions. And usually they, they teach them in one session. It's just a matter of they bring them back and, you know, let's see if you're doing them correctly. And let's just do it again a couple of weeks later, make sure that you're following through with this. But it's stuff that you can teach in one session the patient can continue doing. So there's no need for doing 25 sessions of physical therapy. Absolutely not, for the most part. So now let's just uh, shift gears into the interventional modalities. And in interventional modalities, we have uh, several that I want to briefly mention here. And the first one and the most, um, I guess, oldest one is uh, corticosteroid injections into the joint. Uh, it's the most common. Uh, it can act as a diagnostic and therapeutic injection in the sense that you will have 
some pain relief that will also give you the feedback or this may be where the pain was actually coming from. And you can do it the, what I would say, old-fashioned, the, actually the old-fashioned way used to be blind. But, you know, blind injections will many times, and those of you who have done it or were actually trained doing them, etc., cetera, uh, there's been a real, real hard push from interventional pain uh, against those. I guess there's some obvious reasons for that, but there are, uh, there's, there, there is a, they, they can be quite useful because as you will see, injecting many times you don't have to necessarily be inside the joint to actually exert quite a bit of analgesia. You inject perilegamentous injections that you can do by palpation. You can definitely get a significant response. But be that what it may, we have two methods that are typically used, fluoroscopy guided and then the ultrasound guided, that ultrasound has been kind of becoming much more favorable, favorable now for a variety of reasons. Number one, initially, and in most places, is still paid extra, which is a nice thing. But particularly, it, will have, it has no radiation for the patient, which is uh, good. I mean, it doesn't have any ionizing radiation. It can be done in the, you know, kind of in the office as opposed to having a suite with fluoroscopy. And so the accessibility is right there. The approaches are typically a little bit different. Typically with ultrasound guided, they're doing the superior aspect of the posterior part of the joint. Fluoroscopy is usually the, and it can be done in the superior aspect, but the most widely used technique is the Hendrix technique that is in the bottom of the most caudal portion of the joint. And again, something that we were discussing before the beginning of the session, they're really, when you're guiding this with imaging, there is no reason why you should not be inside the joint. Now, the problem with that is that in order for you to be inside the joint and in order to target the injection properly, you have to spend time angling, be that the ultrasound probe or the C-arm, to get a clear view of the joint. And sometimes in the rush of doing many, many patients and in and out, etc you don't spend the time in actually doing this. This is the part that takes the longest time and you should really spend the most time making sure that the angulation of the joint, depending on the, you know, the angulation of the C-arm, it's actually appropriate because in some patients you have to come more laterally, other patients you have to come more medially, others you can do it AP. Some uh, interventionalists, they like when they do both sides, they like to do a straight AP and even if they don't see one well, they sort of guess where it is and that's not really the right way to do it. So you really have to visualize it, spend time doing that and then the actual injection technique is just a real piece of cake, it's really quick. But this is what takes time. So um, which one's better, fluoroscopy or ultrasound when it comes to accessing the joint? And there was this study that was uh, published in the archives of uh, PMNR four years ago where it showed that the accuracy of fluoroscopy was a little bit higher, 98% versus, you know, 87%. Not, not a whole lot of difference there. Uh, but the function and pain relief that was obtained by these patients was actually similar. So it, it basically boils down to it doesn't really matter. I mean, as long as you're somewhere near there, it's probably going to be um, effective. But again, fluoroscopy, it's probably quicker as well, as long as, long as you have the access to the equipment. It's an um, injection that once you locate the joint, probably takes no more than a couple minutes at the most, so it's, uh, or even less, so it's very, very quick. 
easier to maintain a sterile field as opposed to in ultrasound that it's a little bit harder and you may need somebody to help you, et cetera, but uh, both of them are actually quite effective. So what are some, we always have to mention some of the potential complications and the, the complications with um, interventional modalities are actually very low and very mild for the most part. So we're talking about the most common reaction that you see is a vasovagal reaction. Probably has very little to do with the injection per se, it's just more like the anxiety of the patient and all the endorphins and all the adrenaline kicking in, et cetera. And then when they get up, they start, you know, they get dizzy and the like, but usually no real consequence as long as the patient doesn't fall, right, when they get up from the table. You have to be careful with that. And then the others, such as infection, injection site soreness, and in some folks, particularly when you use corticosteroids, they could have some facial flushing. But again, these are all transient, nothing really to be terribly concerned about. But of course, you know, you have to maintain a sterile field and you have to do it cautiously, you know, carefully, even if you do a thousand of these. So always be careful with them. So now a, this is another topic of a little bit of controversy. And the controversy is, should we put the injected, when you're doing inter in injection techniques, intra-articularly, extra-articularly, or should we do both? And this is a very nice study that was published 10 years ago in the archives of PMNR that they actually looked at a series of patients that they had done they retrospectively review, I believe it was about 180 patients, uh, out of which there were, uh, the majority of them, I believe like 80 of them, were injected with the combination technique, and only uh, about 40 patients were injected with the intraarticular technique, per se. Um, now, the... Okay, so the, the, the two-portion injection, what they call the two-portion injection here, is the one that you actually inject the entire volume that you're going to be using, which typically is going to be in the range of maybe three to four cc's at the most. You're going to be injecting probably one and a half or two cc's intraarticular, and then as you come out, you just kind of bait the ligaments with the other one, one and a half cc's. And that one, the two-portion technique, provide a statistically significant improvement of the SI joint alone. So that actually tells you that the intraarticular injection alone per se is not necessarily going to be your best bet here. Uh, so this one actually gave relief that actually was sustained uh, at the three-month mark uh, with greater than 50% relief. So that is one study that, to my knowledge, is the one that has actually looked at this at more detail, the most detail, and has actually proven, you know, unequivocally that it's probably better to do the two injection technique or the two portion technique. Now, switching gears to other newer things, such as a variety of different regenerative therapies, including platelet-rich plasma, proliferant therapy or prolotherapy, amniotic membrane, different amniotic membrane type uh, products that are commercially available, and stem cells. These have actually become sort of uh, pretty widespread right now. Unfortunately, uh, and I want to basically um, break the, you know, uh, bust uh, or actually burst the bubble here, there, there's very little, if any, uh, evidence of these techniques actually in randomized control, double-blind fashion trials being effective. Now, there are some things, and I'm going to 
shown here in the slides to come that show like they could be helpful, but head-to-head -head comparisons and the like, are they any better than doing just a simple intraarticular and periarticular corticosteroid that is very simple and very cheap as opposed to any of these modalities that tend to be very expensive for a variety, uh, a variety of reasons. Number one, um, some of these products are products that are, you know, have trade names and commercially available, like the amniotic membrane, amniotic fluid type products that are very expensive to harvest, prepare, etc. And the PRP, it just takes a while to actually process your blood to actually separate, etc. And the fact of the matter is that insurance carriers don't pay for these. So whenever they don't pay for these, you get that's going to get stuck with the entire bill, and it can be quite quite expensive. So my thing when a patient had, I, I mean, I get, it used to be like five years ago, one patient here and there, a couple, you know, every couple of months would ask something about this. Now everybody's asking about it. So I just given the, the standard disclosure. I said, you know, um, it looks like they tend to be safe. I don't think that there's any concerns other than the usual concern when you do an injection that you can have an infection, et cetera. Probably the, the rates of that because of being tissue like say stem cells or PRP that is your own tissue, it's even less or rejection of any kind. However, there really is little to no hard medical evidence. And I say the only place that's gonna hurt you is gonna be in your pocket. It's gonna be very expensive. You have the money to throw at that, by all means, you know, go for it. But it's gonna be quite expensive. So let, let me just mention a couple of the studies. This is uh, prolotherapy, as it's commonly known, or what I mentioned before being, it's com it comes from proliferant therapy. Prolotherapy has been done for many years for a variety of particularly uh, tendon ligament problems. Um, some people have actually built an entire practice just doing this, so it's actually quite common, but it's one of those things that also you have a little bit of a problem with the reimbursement. Uh, reimbursement, meaning that many insurance companies will not cover for it. There are many places that won't, you know, they won't even consider covering and then the patient has to pay for them. Usually prolotherapy is done with a combination of medications or combination of compounds or substances. Commonly, you know, D50 or, you know, Dextro 50, um, hypertonic saline and the like, and sometimes a mixture of them with some lidocaine, etc. And this study that was uh, published in 2010 actually had a comparison between patients that received proliferant therapy and corticosteroid injections. They had 48 patients, so a small study, but they followed pain and disability scores, and in the short term, two weeks, they, there was no significant difference between the two. However, at 15 months, so it's a very, very protracted you know, time over a year, therapy was uh, significantly superior to the patients that had corticosteroid. Something that it's actually claimed by the folks that actually believe in this uh, fervently, which is that this sort of regenerates and actually helps to heal by creating an, an, an excessive amount of inflammation initially that will bring in some of the inflammatory and reparative uh, you know, cells and will actually help with it. But that's pretty much it. I mean, that's pretty much what's out there. There's, uh, there, there, are, there are many other you know, case studies and things like that, but one thing that I want to make sure 
that everybody's aware of this, there's a huge publication bias with these things. What, what tends to happen with any of these therapies is that you will hardly ever see, if at all, if you ever see somebody that will publish their data when the patient didn't do well. They will review cases retrospectively, and they will say, wow, this is great, look at this, uh, a lot of patients did well. If they had not done so well, they would not even be submitting the article for publication. So the concern there is, is it superior to other things? Is it the be all and all, et cetera? And it probably isn't. But anyway, this is uh, PRP uh, in published last year in pain practice. And there was, uh, you know, they compared both of them and the pain and disability scores were also similar. No difference at four weeks, similar to prolotherapy and corticosteroid. But then the improvement persisted at three months in the PRP group making sort of the point for maybe a longer-term improvement. However, all these things from the get-go, as I mentioned before, they're a little bit flawed. Why are they flawed? Because you have to really target the actual cause of this and not just simply the pain that you have in the joint. It can be quite helpful to help mobilize, to help actually do the physical therapy, et cetera. But again, if you don't target the specific malalignment, it's not going to help. Just a brief, interesting mention of uh, botulinum toxin, specifically Botox that was used for in this uh, trial, very small trial. I believe there were about nine or ten patients in this. And they did a um, pain control study that, that actually, I'm sorry, the, uh, a patient control, so the patient was their own control after the first round. And they did corticosteroid injections versus botulinum toxin periarticularly so around the ligaments. And the interesting thing is that uh, pain control was similar one month, but then persisted in the botulinum toxin group. Also, speaking to the potential of longer lasting. However, this is actually quite expensive and should not be done as first line by any means. Now, let's briefly mention some of the neuroablative techniques, and the neuroablation techniques are usually going to be done following a good, generally you know, defined as anywhere from 50%, even 75%, as I said before, improvement of the pain or pain relief after a test injection with uh, local anesthetic, uh, similar to when you do like medial branch blocks that you do or facet injections, etc. So after you have that and you have a short-lived relief, then you can start thinking of should we do something more kind of longer lasting, and neuroblation, you know, rhizotomy. And the first part that I want to mention is I go back to that slide that I told you about the innervation of this joint. It's actually quite complex, quite variable. There's anterior, there's posterior. So none of these techniques really reaches every portion of the innervation to this joint. So by virtue of that, you know that it's number one, you have to be very accurate doing it, but not only that, even if you are and you targeted what you wanted to target, you may not be able to target everything. So you end up with a partial relief. But basically there are, you know, again, there's conventional bipolar, cool radio frequency, and the, there's the, the, the most evidence is actually for, for cool radio frequency, and I'll mention that in the next slide. But basically this is the... Um, technique using one procedure that actually is the quickest procedure because 
remember that you have to target multiple branches here and this probe here as you can see in this uh, x-ray that is depicted in this uh, drawing here it's actually doing multiple sort of lesions in multiple of the of the uh, nerves that are responsible for innervating, innervating the joints it's called the synergy procedure and it's uh, uh, usually done under very, you know, kind of twilight, mild sedation, or, you know, even local could be done, but for the most part you have to put the patient in twilight a little bit because it can be a little bit painful, but it's relatively quick, and patients get pretty good results. We do quite a few of these and with very good results, but still you have to address the underlying problem, otherwise the patients are just coming right back after that. So um, out of the different interventional techniques, specifically cool radio frequency is the one that has the greatest evidence, as I said before, the greatest evidence for pain relief in this setting. Uh, but again, going back to why you have to do the whole thing and the evaluation of these patients, this is a, a couple studies, that one published in Pain Physician, the other one in PMNR and several years ago. So last uh, is gonna be surgery. Surgery, the old-fashioned way of treating this was a fusion surgery, as you can see in this x-ray here. Um, now, this is typically going to be patients that have instability. That's, for the most part, tra trauma patients, fractures, and traumatic injuries to the pelvis. So it's rarely done for somebody that has just sacroiliac joint dysfunction that is atraumatic. It is still done, to my surprise at times. But it's, uh, it's something that will forever will alter the, like any other fusion surgery, the biomechanics and the kinetic chain because that little flexibility that was believed to be important is that, that sort of sweet spot where you want to have a little bit of flexibility but not too much flexibility, you have eliminated that little bit of flexibility. So unless you have a lot of instability, you should not really be engaging in this type of uh, Treatment, and then there's a <clears throat> there's this uh, sort of newer technique that is done uh, a lot in you know in Japan, for instance. Now they're doing the, this I-fuse technique that is a minimally invasive that basically just puts some sort of glue or cement in the area that fuses the joint, so it's less invasive than the other one. But again, these are generally reserved for patients that have instability of the joint, traumatic cases. Otherwise, I don't really see any good. Um, indication for patients that had just plain SI joint injection. So in summary, and just uh, wrapping up, um, the one important thing that I want you uh, to actually go home with today or take the take-home message is consider SI joint as a pain generator when you have patients with axial low back pain. Of course, when you're doing that, you have to look at the entire chain and see where it could be coming from, but it's a very important pain generator that sometimes gets overlooked. Um, it's very complex neuroanatomically, and the spinal kinetic chain, you know, it's actually uh, very uh, complex, but needs to be addressed. And we basically discuss an overview of some of the conservative and some of the um, surgical or more interventional techniques. And I'll leave you with this. Uh, you know where that is? Anybody? Hmm? That's New York, right? Rockefeller Center. So you have Atlas there again. Thank you. <laughs>